I wonder if you're a gullible person. Are you the sort of person that gets taken in when someone tells uh, a story and you always believe it and they know you're going to do that so they love to tell stories in your presence? I I know someone like that. I wonder if you're a, a gullible Christian. Christians can be very gullible. We we can be very trusting. It's sort of built into our DNA. We're taught to love and care for others. Uh, we're taught to accept others. And Jesus says, if someone takes your shirt, give him your cloak too. And all that leads to a fair degree of uh, trust and, and openness and, and acceptance of people. And we're taught to respect authority and leaders. And that too can play into us being a bit, gu- bit gullible. But the point is that not everyone is to be trusted, even within the church. Remember these words of Jesus? There will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, by their nature, the wolves in sheep's clothing can be very hard to spot. They they use pious language. They're usually gifted in speaking, either publicly or one-to-one. And they're, they're very active in Christian service. And so we actually need to have, Jesus would say, a healthy scepticism about people that teach things, about people who would be leaders, about what they teach, about how they model Christian living to us. And that's the warning of chapter 4, verse 1 in 1 John today. Have a look at at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. When John talks there about spirits, he's he's meaning uh, the thing that provides the motivation and the and the information of the people who speak, the the prophets, the, the other teachers that are around. Now remember that John is writing to a group or groups of Christians who've been left behind by a group claiming to have new, updated teachings on life and faith, teachings which they're saying God has given them. And remember how John's been writing to encourage the Christians who are left behind that, in fact, they aren't the losers that the people who've left are making them feel. No, you remember our title verse uh, for our sermon series? It's over there on the next page, page 1057, verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. They've got eternal life because they've believed in Jesus. So what a disaster it would be if they lost their eternal life because they listened to one of these wolves and went off following a different teaching. The way John refers to the wolves here in verse 1 is is as false prophets, the false prophets who've gone out into the world. They've left the church of John's readers, but somehow they're still capable of influencing John's readers. They're claiming to speak by the Spirit of God. So John's advice, look at verse 1, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit. In other words, be sceptical, be careful. Just because someone says they've been told by the Spirit to do something or to teach this new insight doesn't mean it is God's Spirit inspiring them. So the people should, verse 1 again, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There's more than one brand of spirit 
in the world. And in these, the following verses, the next five verses, John gives two tests for testing the Spirit, two things to do to test the Spirit, to see whether it is God's Spirit that is motivating and fueling the words of the teacher, to see if the teacher is speaking God's truth or not, so that you can decide whether or not to pay attention to their words. And those two tests give us the other two points of this talk. The first one is check what they teach about Jesus, and secondly, check what they do with God's word. So firstly, check what they teach about Jesus. I love the opening episode of John Dixon's great documentary, The Life of Jesus. I've got a copy if you want to borrow it. We did it here as a church some years ago. Uh, The opening scene of The Life of Jesus finds John in a T-shirt shop and he's surrounded by T-shirts and a number of them depict Jesus. And I thought of his words uh, in the intro when I was reading uh, today's passage. He walks around and he says, and he picks up T-shirts as he does it. There are so many different pictures of Jesus. There's the long-haired Hollywood Jesus, the left-wing Jesus who wouldn't hurt a fly, and then he picks up another T-shirt with a Jesus picture holding a really dirty, big, ugly machine gun, and the right-wing Jesus, who probably would. He then goes on to look at what the Bible actually tells us about who Jesus actually is. And that's around the idea of the first test that John gives his readers in our passage today. Test the teacher by checking what they teach about Jesus, by checking the Jesus that they present. Verse 2, this is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. If the teacher is really being led and inspired by the Spirit of God, then what they teach about Jesus will include a recognition that Jesus is God, come in the flesh to save and rule. Now, coming in the flesh means that Jesus became human. Of course, the issue isn't whether Jesus was human, that he was flesh, because all men and women are flesh. The issue is whether this teacher believes that this particular human was in fact God the Son before he became human, God the Son, the theologians say pre-existent, who came in the flesh, who became human, became man and lived in our world. That is a, a touchstone for you to work out and for John's readers to know if the person speaking really is speaking by the Spirit of God. Now John the writer, you might recall from chapter 1 of 1 John when we opened it up, makes a lot of the fact that he's an eyewitness, that he saw, heard and touched Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And he, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, is in no doubt that Jesus is God the Son. He's seen his glory. And you might recall how he described this same idea in his gospel in chapter 1 of his Gospel of John at verse 14, this famous verse, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son 
who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, John, sorry, is in no doubt about Jesus' identity. And in chapter 5 of 1 John, he'll describe Jesus again as God the Son. Have a look, just next page, 1057, verse 11, near the top of the page. And this is his testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. For John, to be God the Son also means Jesus is the Christ or Saviour King long promised by the prophets. For so many of the Old Testament prophecies could only be really true of one who was God as well as man. And so back in chapter 2, verse 22, John is also dealing with this problem of the false prophets, but he does it a slightly different way. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. I just want to see you to see how John is dealing with the false prophets and it's got to do with what they think about Jesus. 2.22. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Notice there that for John, Jesus is clearly God the Son and the Christ. And that to deny Jesus is to be an antichrist. Now, you've probably heard that expression, antichrist. The New Testament, in just in a few little places, doesn't make much of it, but it talks of this great figure who will appear towards the end of the present age and oppose God's people and oppose the work and the growth of God's church and of Christ. So they're antichrist. But it also, like here in 1 John, speaks of these lesser figures who do the same thing as the big A antichrist. They also work against Christ. And so John's saying these false prophets, these bad teachers, they're antichrist because they don't accept Christ's real identity and they won't give Jesus the real role he should have when they teach about salvation and having a relationship with God. Now we don't know exactly what alternatives the false prophets were proclaiming to John's readers but the one thing that's clear from what John's written isn't it they weren't proclaiming the truth about Jesus about who he really was and is and this really matters you know it really matters that Jesus is God the Son, it matters for salvation. Because if Jesus wasn't God the Son in the flesh, then his death wouldn't save you. It's only because he's God the Son, become a man, that he can be both the perfect sacrifice for us and the perfect substitute in our place when it comes to God's God's judgment. He can be the perfect sacrifice because as God the Son, he's never sinned and so he's perfect. He can be the perfect substitute because he's fully man but again, he's never sinned because he's God. It's it's just amazing. I just marvel at the cleverness, the wisdom of God in planning salvation that God the Son would be the saviour and come into the world born as a man, to be in our place and take our punishment and bring us new life.
for, for, for eternity. And so it's really important here that John's people that he's writing to see that Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh, which means the people shouldn't listen to these other teachers. Those other teachers fail the Jesus identity test. So for us, it's the implication's obvious, isn't it? Test any new teaching that comes your way to make sure what it says about Jesus matches with what we have in the Bible. It might be like here in 1 John about the person of Jesus, where whether he's God the Son become flesh or whether he's something lesser. So uh, the JWs, knock on, the Jehovah's Witnesses, knock on your door. They're taught to believe that Jesus is very eminent over creation, but not God the Son. He's the first in creation. He's created just like us. But if he is, he can't save us. Or it might be about the work of Jesus that someone teaches, whether his death is sufficient uh, or whether you have to contribute some good works to be saved, as in Roman Catholicism or, again, with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Their leaders teach them that Jesus' death removes the effects of Adam's sin in the past so that you can have a sort of a blank slate in your life and then you have to save yourself by your good works. And I don't know if you've looked at your life lately, but you're bound to fail. <laughs> it undermines, doesn't it, completely all that Jesus has done. You know, when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. And the New Testament continue, continue, constantly tells us, have your faith, put your faith in Jesus. What... It's no surprises then that if you talk to a JW person, who they're very nice people, they never have assurance. It's very sad. Despite their great love for God and wanting to serve God, they don't have any assurance because in the end it depends on how good they, if they do enough good works. And you can never know, can you? Because when you're like us, you, you see things that blotted out and have you done enough to blot out that and... Jesus dying and rising was sufficient to save us now and in the future. So be aware, a teacher that makes you think you've got to do something, something more to be a really full Christian and, and to really be saved if it undercuts the sufficiency, the value of what Christ has done. If a teacher gets Jesus right, then his people should have assurance of their salvation. And one of the things John has done through the letter, and we've seen this, is he keeps assuring his readers that they, not those who've left to follow other teachings, they are the children of God. Remember that great verse at the, at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, how amazing the love of God that is lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. They can be assured of that because they've put their trust in Jesus whose work, whose person and work means their sins are forgiven and they know God personally then as Father. And also, as we've seen, they're living it out. They're loving each other. And in this section here on the false teachers and false spirits and the true ones, Jesus throw, John throws in another reason for them to have assurance of their relationship with God, and it's there in verse 4. You, dear children are from God and have overcome them 
because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, whenever John addresses them in the letter as dear children, it's like he's got the green highlighter out. Green's my colour for noticing things. His big point here is that they shouldn't be frightened by all this talk of spirits of the Antichrist because they've got God's spirit in them. Thanks to their listening to the original true message about Jesus, they've received the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. And what a great basis for assurance that is, having God's Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, well, he's far stronger than any other spirit, including including Satan. And that's in verse 4 there, who John has in mind when he speaks of the one who is in the world. They need not fear, so long as they keep testing the spirits, the teaching that comes their way. They're already with the strength. So I said to you that John suggests two tests for the new teaching here. We've looked at the first, now let's more to the second, and it overlaps with the first. It's checking what the teachers do with God's word. Now, if Miley Cyrus suddenly announced she'd, God had spoken to her and it had told her that to be saved, we should all become vegans. What would you do? Well, I hope you would test the spirit, motivating, influencing Miley to see if it fits or matches with what you know about Jesus and about how you're saved. I hope you would, because we've just been talking about that. What did Jesus say about being saved? Pretty much sure that it was nothing to do with diet. Uh, but what if an Anglican cathedral dean, which is like in a cathedral, instead of calling them the minister or the rector, they call them the dean. What if an Anglican cathedral dean, dressed in his clerical collar, his clerical shirt and his collar, poses for a photo in his cathedral and the photo uh, appears in an article in the West Australian newspaper and he says things like this. Many elements of what has been codified as core faith require a highly symbolic understanding. Hardly surprising, symbols need to be interpreted symbolically, not literally. We are free to realise that there is no need for a miraculous event like a virgin birth to be believed in as though it actually occurred. Or that miracles, either medical miracles concerning the lame walking or the blind seeing or the deaf hearing or natural miracles like stopping the storm at sea or walking on the water or making five loaves and two fish feed 4,000 people, to believe that any of those were anything more than stories which symbolised Christ's affinity with the Father. It is similarly not necessary to believe that Jesus' resurrection was a return to the life he had before he died. What do you do? Hey, this is an Anglican dean. This is a man with the collar. What, what do you do with that sort of thing? You are to test every spirit to see if it is from God by checking the Jesus being portrayed is the Jesus of the Bible that the eyewitnesses like John have given us in their writings and more broadly to judge what the teacher does with God's word, the Bible. Do they seek to teach from it or to get around it? 
Speaking of the false prophets, teachers, John makes a distinction between himself and them in verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. How does he recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood? It's got to do with how the teachers respond to him and what he has said. Now, John is really special. He's one of Jesus' disciples and was appointed an apostle. And the apostles' role was to proclaim... They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus. So they had the job after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven. They had the job of going around and telling people about what they'd seen, proclaiming Jesus so people could come to faith, recognising, hey, he really is the Christ, he really is God the Son, and he really is the way to be saved. And then they had the role of building on that by teaching the early church about living as followers of Christ. And thanks to God, we have 23 letters and other writings in our New Testament that preserves the writings of the apostles and their associates. So when John says here in verse 6, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. Now that sounds sort of arrogant, but he's not being arrogant. He's the man. He's one of the men anyway. He's an apostle. He was there from the beginning and Jesus in fact promised them that he would send his Holy Spirit to help them remember all he taught them so they could tell everybody else. John is no more arrogant than if, say, Albert Einstein walked up here, knocked me out of the way pretty hard, given he's a bit old, or he's dead, but if he was alive, and he knocked me out of the way, and then he started to teach and taught about my theory of relativity. It's his, isn't it? He's the man. He's the one that that made it up. And so it's not arrogant to talk about. So John here, he, it's not arrogant for him to talk about how they respond to us and what we say. Do they listen to us? But we're arrogant if we reject the writings of the apostles like John in preference for some other teaching we find more comfortable or less challenging or more in keeping with our lifestyle choices. The apostles teach so much about salvation and what matters in life. But the thing is that so much of it is not in keeping with our world. So it's not trendy. It's not going to get picked up and posted numerous times. The thing you often find with new teachings, though, is that they become attractive and popular because they don't challenge our worldly ways. In fact, they often simply baptise a worldly attitude or practice. So that when you see that feeling, when you see a new teaching uh, in, in church or in Christian wider circles, and it's really catching on, I actually think that's a signal to just, I'm really, you've got to really look closely at that new teaching or practice, whether it's taught by a Christian teacher or an outsider, and run the two tests over it. Check this matches up with Jesus and check whether this matches up with the teaching of the apostles. So to give an example, the reason the prosperity gospel is so popular is it doesn't challenge 
our worldly materialism. It says God wants you to be, in fact, it promises you will be wealthy and successful if you have enough faith. That's a wicked lie. You, you, you line it up with Jesus. Jesus consistently keeps talking about um, our attitude to money in giving it away and caring about others. And then the rest of the New Testament It never promises wealth in this life, but what does it promise? Well, difficulty, hardship, challenge. And yes, you will need faith to see God is still loving and caring for you in those times, which will also turn out to be the best times of your growth as well. That's what the apostles say about wealth and prosperity. And when teachers in our world say life is all about being materially well off, the apostles say, be content and be generous with what you have. When teachers in our world say, get ahead, the apostles say, you can't get further ahead than knowing Jesus, so strive to grow in him more than anything. Don't add some fancy spiritual practice. When teachers in our world say life is all about being comfortable, the apostles say, rejoice if persecution or difficulty comes because you follow Jesus. Following Jesus is more important than comfort and you'll be rewarded in heavenly dwellings. When teachers in our world say that religions lead to one God and are equal, the apostles say, no, there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. When teachers in our world say you can achieve and be anything you want to, the apostles say, strive to be like Jesus more than anything. When teachers in our world say there are no genders, the apostles say God created man and female and will flourish as we work out how to live together as godly men and women. When teachers in our world say having sex is the measure of whether a person's life is complete and if you're not getting any then somehow you're incomplete, the apostles say sex is for growing intimacy and closeness within a marriage to keep it strong. And celibate singleness is not second prize, but provides a wonderful freedom to serve the Lord. There's so many examples you could give where we actually have to think, is that what the Bible teaches? What does the Bible say on this topic? Since we're not from the world, we're to listen to the teaching of the apostles and test all teachings against that. Is it in accordance with the teachings of the apostles in the Bible? Or is it really just someone speaking from the viewpoint of the world and contrary to the Bible? I want to give you a story, an example of someone uh, called Ben Kwashi. He's an archbishop, a Nigerian archbishop, and his life was the subject of the book we just finished at St Mark's Book Club. When he became Bishop of Jos in northern Nigeria, he encountered a strong Freemasonry group at St Luke's Cathedral. Freemasons, if you don't know, they're like an old men's club. Um, They're very prominent uh, in different places and they carry these funny little bags and go to these secret little meetings. At St Luke's Cathedral, the members were wealthy and influential And they recruited people from within the church. They quoted Bible verses. In many ways, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Wealthy, influential, upstanding members of the community, church-going. But the Masons have secret teachings, which members are not allowed to divulge. 
and they're based on bits of the Old Testament distorted, but they don't really come from the Bible. Ben decided he needed to take them on because Freemasonry ultimately demands your loyalty above anything else. Your loyalty, your faith, your brotherhood over and above loyalty to Jesus and his people. Ben reasoned that when Jesus said you cannot please two masters, well, Freemasonry fails that test. It fails the Jesus identity test because Jesus alone is Lord. In Ben's words, he'll quote him, we must serve no other. Jesus reinforced this by pointing out that he alone is the way, the truth and the life. He alone is Lord. Jesus must be supreme at all times or at no time. These cults can add nothing to him. And so in the story, it's really entertaining to read what happens when he takes on the cult. He's very brave, Ben Quashi. He preaches against them. He tells members they'll have no part in the kingdom of God unless they renounce their cult membership and turn to Christ. He takes their names off the church rolls. He makes a thing where any of them that die can't have a funeral from the church and can't be going in the church uh, graveyard. He does all these things uh, in a battle with them, and it goes on for some years. So there's one man who, for 10 years would regularly verbally abuse Ben and threaten him with, you know, we're taking our giving away from the church, and they did. But one time after 10 years, this man, who, as I said, was quite influential, he had his 80th birthday party, and he had it at the church. I guess he used the hall or something, and Ben was asked to pray. And as Ben prayed, something happened in the man which we can only attribute to the Holy Spirit the man was really convicted and he started to cry. And then in subsequent weeks, he'd come to the church and Ben thought at first that he might be angry, but then as it it went on, he'd say to Ben, pray for me, Bishop. And that went on for a few weeks and and then he said, pray for me, Bishop, to be saved. And then after that, he said, I have wasted 70 years Don't waste your life like me. And this guy was a grand master, like the top honcho of these uh, masons. And he repented. It's an amazing story. Ben tested the spirits. I tell you this story because he's an example of testing the spirits by measuring them against the person and work of Jesus. They claimed uh, this knowledge to bring people closer to God. But he tested what they were saying against the person of Jesus and against the writings of the apostles and he found them false and worldly. And so he stood against them and he certainly didn't believe them himself. The bottom line today is don't be gullible and blindly believe every spirit, every new teaching that comes your way, even if it it is in a book that you got from the Kurong (laughs) catalogue. Don't believe it. Test the teaching Check to see if the teaching's inspired by the Spirit of God. And it will be if it's in line with the person and work of Jesus and if it lines up with the apostles' teaching. And don't even believe what I or Dave say without testing it. If I or Dave teach something that doesn't seem to accord with the Jesus you know or the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, ask us to show you where 
or how we came to that conclusion. Don't, don't be reticent about this. Obviously do it in a respectful way, but know that we'll be encouraged that you're thinking about your faith, that you're actually listening enough to think of that problem. That, that'd be fantastic. As I finish, can I add that there's one other main way you can test the spirits in 1 John, the, the teachers. Rather than looking at what they teach, look at their lives, in particular how they love. And that's the subject of the next part of 1 John 4, but that is for next week.